Hey folks, Pastor Lance Ralston here from Calvary Chapel. I'm one of the board members for Enduring Word, a privilege to be on the board with uh, Chuck Musselwhite and Miles Benedictus. Of course, Dave Guzik is our fearless leader. Dave is going to be gone today and for the next two weeks, and so he's asked the board members if we would fill in for him. And so here we are uh, taking your questions today. And uh, just wanted to let you know, I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Oxnard. This is the first time I've done a live YouTube stream. First time I've done something on YouTube by myself. Uh, our church, of course, is on, on YouTube, but uh, first time I've done, ever done anything like this. Certainly anytime I've done something live like this. Uh, so bear with me if it seems a little chunky. Uh, it's not an if it's going to be chunky. I'm sure it will be. Uh, and so I just ask for your forbearance while I uh, learn how to do something new. Uh, a question that has come in is, what's this about a camel through a needle's eye? Uh, this is a question that gets asked a lot as we're studying through the Bible, especially through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount Jesus uh, making this statement. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, as we look at this, we always want to take a look at the context. Context is so important. In the verses just prior to this, uh, a wealthy young leader uh, of the nation of Israel had come to Jesus. He had been impressed by Jesus. Uh, Jesus, of course, was a rabbi. Rabbis were considered to be authorities on the things of God. And so this wealthy young man, the, we regularly refer to him as the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus for, uh, if you will, an authoritative and definitive answer on the question of what must I do to have eternal life? Uh, without going into a, a lot of detail on, on that passage itself, Jesus used uh, the question that he asked as a foil to dismantle the popular idea of how people gained heaven. People assumed that heaven was earned by keeping the law, by doing good work, specifically by keeping the law of Moses. Uh, the young man that asked this question comes across in the text as being a genuinely good guy. He seems moral. He seems responsible. And when he claims that he had kept the law, uh, Jesus responds to that by giving a simple challenge that proves that while he may have indeed have kept the outward letter of the law, he wasn't really keeping the more important inner spirit of the law. And so the young man walks away bummed out. And I think that that's really a clue to what comes next. You see, instead of doing what Jesus had said that he should do, uh, he balked. So we have to back up and wonder if the young man was sincere in his first question, what must I do to have eternal life? Because when Jesus told him what to do, instead of doing it, he walked away. Being the good guy that he already was, he probably assumed that when he asked, what do I have to do to have eternal life? that Jesus would have replied, well, you've already done it. You, you already have eternal life. But not hearing that he did, but rather that there was something that he still needed to do, he was bummed out. It's as Jesus watched the young ruler walk away that we read these words then. Then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. What Jesus says here and, and uses as an illustration quite frankly, has been horribly misinterpreted uh, by not a few Bible teachers. Somehow, it has crept into tradition in teaching this passion, passage Excuse me, to, to say that um, there was a tiny gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And the only way for a camel to get through it was by unpacking it. Uh, typically, camels were used for carrying burdens, for carrying trade items, and so on. And so you would unpack the camel of all of its baggage, 
you take off its saddle, you would make it kneel down, and then you would have to push it through the gate in order to be able to get it to go through uh, the, the gate. The problem is we have absolutely not a shred of historical evidence that there was any gate like that in Jerusalem. There were certainly small gates in Jerusalem, but none of them were called the eye of the needle. And quite frankly, Jesus never intended such an interpretation to be used here. You see, Jesus wasn't just saying that it was hard for a rich man to enter heaven. He's saying that it's impossible to get to heaven by our own works. That is by the route that the rich young ruler had just tried to make for himself. It would be easier to pass a camel through uh, the eyelet of a sewing needle. Now, I guess you can get a camel through the eye of a needle. You just have to grind it up really small and then use a very tiny funnel. The disciples' reaction is really a major clue to what Jesus meant. They were stunned by what he said. Because till they started following Jesus, quite frankly, they were of the same mind as this rich young ruler. Like all of the Jews of their day, they thought that eternal life was something that you proved that you were worthy of by doing good works. And God showed his approval that you were indeed on the path to heaven by blessing you with material prosperity in this life. So the rich were assumed to already be heaven-bound, to be those that would, in fact, inherit eternal life. But Jesus utterly nukes that idea when he says that uh, it was hard for the rich to get into heaven. If it was hard for them, well, everyone else was literally out of luck. But Jesus doesn't leave entrance to heaven as just hard. No, he wraps it up, ramps it up to the impossible category when he speaks of the camel and the needle. What Jesus wants his disciples to understand is that they've got salvation all wrong. It's not a reward for doing good works. Heaven isn't the destiny of those that have lived a holy life. In short, it's impossible for a man or woman to earn salvation. But what's impossible with God is uh, impossible with man is supremely possible with God. You see, it was time in Jesus's ministry as he's now headed to Jerusalem to die to make sure that his disciples understand that salvation isn't a reward that God gives for our work. It's a gift that he gives because of Christ's work. We don't do the work that earns eternal life. Jesus did the work that earns eternal life, and the reward that God gives him is to give us eternal life. So I hope that clears up this question about the camel and the needle's eye. Uh, no, Jesus didn't mean that it was just hard. He meant that it was hard to the point of impossible. The next question that we have is from Jose, and Jose asks, why in Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15, the book of life appears in the great white throne? Will it serve as evidence that their names are not in or on it? Will there be names of these people on the book of life? Um, not really sure I not really sure I really understand that question. Let me read it again. Why in Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15, the book of life appears on the great white throne? Will it serve as evidence that their names are not in it? Uh, not, I, I'm not really understanding the phrasing here. Will there be names of these people on the book of life. So let me let me turn to Revelation 20. Looking it up in my Bible program here. And we jump on down to verse 12, which says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, but the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead and those who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
So the, the passage here is a little bit uh, of a, a, it's created a question for the scholars because there, it says that there are books that are open, but those books aren't given a title like the book of life is given. And so uh, what's assumed is that the books are actually a record for each person's life and their deeds are accounted for. Uh, it's important for us to realize that in the judgment of God, our judgment will be according to God's justice. We may uh, assume that because God is perfectly just, not only will those who end up in hell uh, miss out on eternal life and the glory and bliss of heaven, but they will suffer uh, a degree of punishment in accordance with how they've lived their lives. Because again, God's justice is perfect. So yes, they're going to be in hell, in the lake of fire for eternity, but there may be degrees of justice or punishment or the experience of God's wrath that they experience according to how immoral they have been. So those books that are left untitled could very well be one book or chronicle for each person, and each person's life is read out and judged accordingly. But there is another book, a book of life, and it seems to be that at the great white throne, uh, the book of life is looked at. If the book of life does not have a name in it, that person is judged by the book of their life. Whereas in the book of life, if a person's name is written there, it means because they have been born again. They have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and so they have passed from death to life. They will not be judged for their sins. They will instead only face a judgment for rewards, because all of their sin was judged on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's important to realize that everybody's sin will be judged. The difference is this. Those that go to heaven have their sin judged in the cross of Jesus Christ, so that when Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full, that meant the payment for their sin, for their guilt before God, was fully atoned for, paid for, by the work of Jesus Christ in the cross. So their judgment passed to Christ, and of course, his righteousness then passes to the person who believes. We call it the great exchange. So those people will not be judged for their sin. They will instead be judged for their uh, for what they have done in their life and faith in serving God, and they will receive rewards, as Paul speaks to the Corinthians in his letter. Whereas others whose names are not written in the book of life, since their name isn't there, then their life will be judged by the book that has contained uh, the record of their life. Uh, from Ben H., the question is asked, the law here in Arizona has legalized recreational marijuana. A lot of my friends have started to argue that it falls under Romans 14, like alcohol. My friends say that it refers to harder drugs, not weed. Well, oh, okay, so this, uh, this would have to be considered, uh, I think, a conscience issue, and uh, we don't have clear teaching in Scripture on this. Um, we, we do know that the Bible is very clear that uh, one of the marks of spiritual maturity and one of the things that we are to do as we walk faithfully with the Lord is to be sober-minded. And so anything that would take us out of that place of being sober before the Lord, of being able to handle life soberly, uh, would be inappropriate. So anything that would take us out of sobriety. So that would be alcohol, um, that would be marijuana, that would be any drug. Um, may I say if you take a good look at the word that is translated sober into English, uh, it, it speaks of having a clear mind. Uh, so while in a most obvious sense, that would relate to something like inebriation through alcohol or drugs, uh, it would also apply to heightened emotional states that cause a person not to think clearly. If a person is inordinately angry, if they're filled with rage, they're not thinking clearly. If they're filled with jealousy, they're not thinking clearly. If they're filled with depression, and that begins to color their thoughts in a negative direction, they're not thinking clearly. They're no longer thinking soberly. So let's understand that when the Bible calls us to have a sober mind, it means that we're not to allow any influence, whether it's chemical or spiritual to color our thinking and take us out of that place where we can interact with the truth and the grace of God without distraction. Regarding this issue of the legalization of marijuana, uh, you know, there was a time in our country when prohibition made the consumption of alcohol illegal. Uh, and, and then the government changed its, uh, its laws on that and suddenly it became legal. 
the issue isn't really if, so, if something is is legal. The, the issue is, is it something that the Christian should do? Let's not allow ourselves to be caught up in a, a kind of, um, how can I get around the commands of God to do something that I want to do? And really, the question on the part of Christians is, uh, uh, can I smoke marijuana because it's legal now? Well, why would you smoke marijuana? Um, the, the obvious object of smoking marijuana is to get high. You could make a case for saying that uh, a glass of wine or a beer does not inebriate you. Um, people do drink without the intent of getting drunk. Anybody that puts a reefer in their mouth, a joint, uh, has one intent, and, and that is to cop a buzz. So um, not really sure it's the same, but again, let's back up. Um, instead of trying to find excuses to be able to do these things, let's remember the injunction of the Lord to keep a sober mind and to think soberly. Anthony asks, what does the Bible say about believers baptizing their own family members? Well, <laughs> great, great question. It's interesting, Anthony, that you asked this question, because just recently I was thinking about this. As we think about the sacraments that God has given uh, the church, you know, there's all kinds of questions on how many sacraments there are. Uh, I believe the Roman church says that there are seven sacraments and that they can only be performed by ordained priests. Uh, we in the Protestant tradition typically believe in two sacraments, baptism and communion. Uh, but again, a sacrament, uh, something that is sacred, a special sacred rite. And then who really is authorized to be able to perform those? Um, there, there's debate uh, in, in those elements of the Protestant church uh, that have a bit more of a formal pastoral role uh, and ordination and so on, uh, they would say that the sacraments are something that need to be performed by an ordained individual. And then those that are a bit more, uh, we would say, less uh, structured with uh, a highly defined church hierarchy or, or leadership system uh, would say, no, the sacraments can be performed by any born-again believer. And I, I would say that um, what you need to do is you need to be convinced on on what you believe about church leadership to understand this. I, I, I don't I don't believe that uh, it's inherently wrong or that you can you can make a good biblical case for saying that a, a non ordained person can't serve communion, uh, can't uh, baptize people. Uh, I, th I I I think you could make a good case for saying that actually they can. When Jesus uh, instituted the Lord's Supper and said, do this in remembrance of me, of course, he's saying that to the apostles, but of course, he's looking long range, and the early church understood that this wasn't just something that they did then, that night of the Last Supper, that it was to be something that they did going forward. And, and so we see that practice in the early church. We see Paul writing about it in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, uh, that we are to do this and celebrate communion, the Lord's table, until Jesus comes again. Uh, and, and again, what we are to do, we are to do in remembrance of him. So there's no command there that, that is something that can only be officiated by somebody who's been ordained. And then we need to ask the question, well, what is ordination? Where do we find the basis for that in Scripture? And, and that, again, is something that uh, that's not a process or a right that is clearly defined in Scripture. Paul says to appoint elders. He tells uh, Titus and Timothy to appoint elders, uh, and then just simply gives the criteria for what elders are. And Peter speaks about what elders are to do, um, but they're simply church leaders that are recognized as those that are charged with the responsibility of leading the church. So um, the idea of ordination that we have and then giving only ordained individuals in the church the ability to be able to serve the sacraments of communion and baptism, uh, you, I think we could be stretching that too far. So no, I don't think it's inappropriate for uh uh, someone who understands what 
baptism is or understands what communion is, uh, to be able to lead others in that. Uh, I, I don't think you can make a good biblical case for saying uh, that they, they can't do that. All right. Here's one from H.C. Fit and Glow. Uh, this is obviously somebody who's watching uh, that looks like they have maybe a, uh, a physical exercise business or interest. So right on. How do you keep a good attitude at work with coworkers that do not appreciate your Christian presence? Oh, that, you know, that is such a, a great practical question. Um, you keep a good attitude, quite frankly, in all areas of life by not allowing your attitude to be determined by your circumstances. This is where our understanding of the joy of the Lord is so important. Our, our joy is something that comes from our relationship with Jesus, which is unchanging. Listen, everything else in life is subject to change because we live in a world that is in constant flux. Even we ourselves are in constant flux. Sometimes we go through emotional swings we don't even understand the reason for. At times we're happy. Somebody say, why are you so happy? I don't really know. Other times we're depressed. Why are you depressed? I don't really know. Even we can change, but our world is constantly in flux, constantly changing. So while our circumstances can be constantly changing, there's one thing in life that is absolutely sure, and that is our relationship with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul makes such a case for who and what we are in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, I think it's 60-some times, I forget the number right now, but I think it's 60-some times he uses the phrase in Christ in his letter to the church at Ephesus. In Christ, in him, in the Lord, it all means the same thing. Paul means us to understand who we are and what we are in terms of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God's love towards us, his disposition towards us does not change. It's been forever settled through the work of Jesus Christ. When God looks at us, he sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because God does not change, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, we, we don't need to have an attitude change in our understanding of who we are and what we are. And it's that frame, that, that identity that we then bring into every other relationship, every other environment. The big issue that most people face is this, who am I? Uh, we can break that down into uh, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going? But you boil all that down into one question, and it's this, who am I? Now, most people will try to find the answer to that. They'll seek for the, the resolution of that in terms of this world, this life, and how they live in relationship with others. And so, uh, from their family, how they were brought up, from their parents, from their siblings, from the messages they get from the world, and especially in this generation, those messages coming through media, uh, the, the idea is, well, who you are is what you do, your job, who you know, how much money you make, what your hobbies are, what you're good at, all of those kinds of things. Uh, just something as simple and profane, if you will, is, you know, what car you drive, where you vacation, what clothes you wear, for goodness sake, um, what, what, uh, what, what kind of smartphone you have. Yes, young people today, even what, what model of, of a smartphone do they have? Their identity is wrapped up in these things. What their online profile says about them, that's their identity. But that's constantly changing. And, and that identity then becomes the source of our attitude, our, our direction, our posture. But if we, as Christians, identify ourselves primarily through our relationship with God, which is unchanging, which is settled, which is not drawn from the question that we give about who we are, but what God has said about who we are, then our attitude is drawn from that. And so we bring our attitude into every relationship, into every environment, rather than getting our attitude from every relationship and from every environment. Now, I hope that helps.
Janos asks, will all Christians receive a crown as a reward from Jesus when we stand before the judgment seat? Oh, again, another great question. Thanks, Janos. Uh, so the Bible does speak of, the New Testament speaks of uh, various crowns that we will receive. Uh, and it, it, it looks like those crowns come from different things. It looks like uh, leaders that have served well in the church will get a certain crown. Uh, martyrs who have died for the faith or have suffered for the faith will receive a crown. Uh, and then there does seem to be crowns that are passed out for, for rewards. And so uh, there may be different crowns. Uh, here's the thing. People have asked, well, are there going to be some people that don't get any crowns? I mean, they, Jude talks about those that make it into heaven, if you will, is kind of by the skin of their teeth. <laughs> Jude speaks of those that make it into heaven, he says, as though through the flames. It's this idea of, you know, they they barely squeak by. Uh, they believed in Jesus, but they didn't have any works. So, uh, yes, they made it to heaven, but uh, no real crown. You go bareheaded, if you will, while everybody else has crowns, and maybe some they've piled up crowns on their heads. And then the question is, well, then, is there going to be people like looking around and bummed out? I didn't get a crown, or I don't have as many crowns as that guy, or the crown that I do have isn't as pretty as that guy's crown. <laughs> Are we going to be envious in heaven? And the answer, of course, to that is no. Because as we look to the book of Revelation and we see the redeemed before the throne of God on that glassy sea, that, that multitude so vast, no one could number it. And we are gazing on the glory of he who sits upon the throne. You know what it says that all the saints do? It says they cast their crowns before his throne. Because we're going to recognize that just being there is enough. Just being there will be enough. There, there's not going to be any envy in heaven it's one of the commands that we're not to envy. The 10th commandment says not, not to envy others. Well, there's no sin in heaven. So no, we're not going to be envying others and we're not going to be regretful. We're going to be joyous that we're there because he brought us there. And just out of appreciation, we'll take that which he has given to us by way of reward and we'll just cast it at his feet and say, Lord, were it not for you, I wouldn't even be here. And we'll just be on our faces, just glorifying him. So why did we get rewards? Well, again, because God is just. As we talked about earlier, just as you can make a good case, because God is just, that those that have sinned more will receive more judgment, more uh, punishment, if you will, more torment in the lake of fire. Those that have done more for the Lord will receive more reward. Uh, but again, in the glory of heaven, all of that, by comparison, will diminish in importance to insignificance. Donald asks, is there a problem if a person has accepted Jesus as their personal Savior and wants to be baptized, does not want to be committed to a local church membership? Is there a problem? Um, I wouldn't say that there is a, uh, a problem. It, well, let me back up and say, well, yeah, I think there is a problem, but I don't think not being a part of a local church is um, going to keep you out of heaven. I, again, uh, what, what obtains eternal life for us is believing in Jesus. And baptism is an important step of obedience. Um, I, Donald, I, I would want to ask the question, why not join a local church? The church is clearly something that Jesus came to establish. Uh, it's, it's quite clear in, I believe it's Matthew 19, where Jesus few, first uses that word um, and, and says that uh, he will establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that, that Jesus came to uh, build, to, to leave an, something that would continue his work. And that's called the church. That's what he calls it, the ecclesia, the called out assembly. He uses a, a Greek word there that referred to that group of citizens in the Greek city-states that were charged with the responsibility of, of leading and overseeing and stewarding their city, their lives together as a community. So um, it's clear that the church is God's will. 
when you ask the question, and, and we do hear this a lot, Donald, you're not the only one that asked this question. And I don't know if you're asking for yourself or maybe for somebody else. Maybe you've been dealing with somebody who's been who's been saying, I don't need, I don't need to be a part of a church. Um, actually, yeah, you do. You, you do need to be part of a church. You're already part of the church. But the expression of that is participation in a local church. Uh, because that is where we discover our spiritual gifts, where we have a chance to use our spiritual gifts and to mature in our spiritual gifts. You, you cannot make a case in the New Testament for a Christian that's not part of a local congregation. Um, it's understood in the early church that to be a Christian is to be a part of a fellowship of Christians, a community of believers. Um, the, the fruit of the Spirit that's given to us in Galatians 22, every single one of those fruit, it, you could say that love is the fruit of the Spirit, and then all of the rest of the things that are listed there are flavors of that fruit, are aspects of that fruit. All of them are things that are used in relationship with others. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is something that needs to be in relationship with somebody else. You don't just sit alone in a room and have love. Uh, joy is something that comes in relationship with others. Uh, Long-suffering, um, gentleness, kindness, uh, self-control. Th these are all aspects of the work of the Spirit that, that are revealed and matured in the context of relationships. Uh, God gives to each of his people spiritual gifts because he wants them to be a part of developing others, of blessing them, of helping them to grow. So being part of a local church is part of God's will. Will it keep you out of heaven if you don't go to church? No. Again, it's an issue of believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that the work that he did on the cross atones for our sins and that his resurrection justifies us and gives us new life. That's how we gain heaven. But if we want to grow in Christ, which we know is God's will, being part of a local congregation, being part of a local fellowship, being a, uh, being a part of the lives of others, and then being a part of your life is the way that God has given to do that. So uh, I would say that um, it's not essential to salvation, but it's essential to Christian growth, which is uh, part of maintaining our spiritual lives. If, if, you want to, if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, you can't really do it apart from the body of Christ. So being part of a local church is, is an important part of the Christian life. Dorcas asks, in Isaiah 24, 22, it says, after many days, they will be punished. What many days, what does many days mean? So let me go to Isaiah here. Isaiah 24, 22. So I'm going to have to back up here and see what the context for this is. Okay, so it says in verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth, the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. So it looks like the immediate context here is um, speaking of the end times. And uh, again, this seems to be a passage that would be parallel to those chapters in Revelation that speak of the judgment of the, the very end. And uh, it, it looks like that what's being spoken of here are those angelic beings that fell with Lucifer in his abortive rebellion against God, uh, we uh, from other passages, we can pretty safely conclude that about a third of the angelic host was deceived by Satan and joined him 
in his rebellion against God, Lucifer, of course, being uh, one of the cherub, probably the leader of the, the cherubim, um, that kind of ceremonial bodyguard around the uh, around the throne of God. And he, he uh, for some reason, uh, his will exalted itself, and he decided that he didn't like the direction that God was going and staged a rebellion against him, persuaded a third of the angels to go with him. That rebellion was put down, uh, and those angels that joined him in his rebellion uh, left their position as angels and became, we assume, what are known as the demons. And, uh, and so it looks like here uh, that this is that period of time when they are finally judged. Uh, uh, many days here then would refer to the scope of human history that then is wrapped up in uh, the return of Christ and the final judgment when uh, at the very beginning of uh, the millennium, when Christ returns to earth and begins his thousand-year reign over earth, uh, it says that Satan is bound and he is cast into um, the bottomless pit where he's uh, kept for a thousand years. And it, it, the, it looks like demons are then bound as well. They're no longer allowed to roam freely on earth. And humanity gets to see uh, what God always intended. Uh, humans are free. Uh, they, they still have the ability to choose. Christ will reign visibly from Jerusalem uh, over all of the earth. And so humanity is going to get to see the perfect reign of God, the kingdom of God on earth for a thousand years. Earth will be restored to a paradise uh, and humanity will get an opportunity to see uh, what God always intended. And it's going to finally and forever uh, shut up uh, both rebellious man and Satan from their accusation that God has been unjust. Uh, and so it looks like that's what the passage in Isaiah is referring to. Okay, uh, another question from West. How much authority do pastors have to bind someone in the spirit? Um, well, so this, I think, West would uh, relate to go back to something that I was just sharing about this idea of, of ordination. Um, pastors are, uh, that's an office that God has given to lead, teach, and protect the church. It's certainly an office we see in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, that God has given. And so when he gives a calling to leadership, he gives uh, what authority is needed to that end as well. But the authority of a pastor is uh, for what a pastor is to do. L let's not forget that that word pastor uh, means literally shepherd. It's poimen in the Greek, and it means shepherd. And a shepherd's job was to lead, feed, and protect the flock of God. Um, there's a reason why uh, the Spirit chose that word to describe those that lead local congregations, shepherd, because that becomes a one-word job description. They're to tend the flock of God. And if you look at what a shepherd does, it is to lead, feed, and protect the flock. That becomes then the scope of the pastor spiritually, to lead, which means seeking the Lord for direction on how to lead this local congregation of believers that he's given charge of, uh, feed them, meaning God's word, to, to nourish them in the things of God, and then to protect them, to, to make sure that they're uh, kept safe from, from spiritual harm, uh, even from physical harm, we might say, in, in the responsibility of, of, of making sure that where they meet and how they meet is, is safe. Uh, so this idea of, when he asked the question, and I see it here in quotes, bind someone in the spirit um, there's, there's no real injunction in Scripture that's charged to pastors to that end. Um, what what you, you, we may be seeing here is kind of bringing in another idea where in speaking to the disciples on Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah and of Jesus's affirmation of that, that that his revelation had come from God. Um, 
then he he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he goes on to speak of, and he says, and I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, excuse me if I go on for a little while here, because this is, this is rather important. Um, this idea of binding and loosing, unfortunately, has become for some segments of the church this idea that we as believers have authority to bind and loose things, that's not really uh, what Jesus is saying. Um, we, whenever we read these narrative passages of the Bible and, and the letters of the New Testament and so on, we always ask the question, what did this mean to those that originally read it or heard it? What did it mean to them? So what did the disciples Understand Jesus to mean when he said to them, I give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What they understood was this. He's using terminology that the rabbis used. That's rabbinic terminology. And they knew that because they had heard it. When they would go to the synagogue because a traveling rabbi had come, word would go out. Everybody loved to go listen to the rabbis when they would come through your village because they were recognized as real deal men of God. And when they spoke and they were teaching, what, what you heard when you heard a rabbi speak was, was just below the scriptures in terms of authoritative. Uh, they, they were understood to have authority from God. And so when the rabbi taught, uh, you, you, what you were hearing was the heart and the will of God. So when the rabbi came to town, People would go and listen to them teach, and then the rabbi would take questions. Now, people would bring forward questions, and they would say, Rabbi, here's my situation. What they wanted to hear was, what does the word of God say to my situation? Typically, how does the law of Moses apply to this situation? Because the people in their own minds couldn't make a connection between, you know, here's my situation, and here's the law of Moses— um, well, how does the law of Moses inform my, my situation? It's a lot like today when people come for counseling and say, hey, I'm going through this, uh, what should I do? What they're really saying is, what does the Bible say? Pastor, help me understand what the Bible says about this. Okay, so uh, the rabbi would then say, uh, either you are bound by the law, because here's what the law says to this, so you're bound by it, or the law doesn't speak to, to this situation, so you're loosed from the law. So uh, you have to make a decision here that's based on uh, what you believe is right by God, uh, by your conscience. So you're either bound or you're loosed. In other words, it was a way of saying you have authority to define for people what God's will is. Okay, so, so when Jesus says to the, uh, the disciples— that he's now saying, I'm going to build my church on the foundational statement that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, that he is the Savior, that faith in him determines whether you're in or out of the church. He then says to those disciples, those original disciples who become the apostles, I'm giving you the keys, the authority, a key is a symbol of authority, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom so that whatever you bind on earth or loose on earth is bound or loosed in heaven. He's saying, guys, I'm giving you the authority that after I'm gone for the church, which I've just talked about that I'm going to establish, you will determine what what is part of the Christian life, what is normative for the church, and what isn't. So really, Jesus is speaking specifically to the apostles there. He's not speaking to all Christians at all time. He's saying uh, to the apostles, uh, you guys are going to uh, build the foundation of which I'm the cornerstone. And that's exactly why we see then the apostle Paul in writing to the Ephesians saying that the church is built on the prophets and the what? The apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So, uh, Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles then taught on Jesus because Jesus didn't leave us any writings. They did. And it's their writings and their teaching that framed the church uh, upon which the church today still rests. 
that's why we have what we call uh, uh, the apostolic church or apostolic uh, authority. Our authority as apostles isn't in modern-day apostles. It's in the original apostles to whom we look back on uh, that teaching and that authority being framed by the New Testament and uh, the Scriptures. So this idea that uh, you can bind someone in the Spirit, mm, no, I, I'm sorry. I know that there are certain groups that uh, get into kind of some odd ideas about spiritual warfare, but um, praying, I bind this Spirit or I bind that, there really, we don't have good New Testament warrant for that. It sounds great, makes us feel good, but uh, we just really don't have solid biblical warrant for that. All right, Andrea asks, can you explain Ephesians 5, where it talks about the different offices within the church? Is the pastor-teacher office the same? Uh, so that's actually in Ephesians 4. So let me go there. So that's in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And Andrea asked the question, so do we have five offices there or do we have four offices there? And uh, the answer to that is, it's one or the other. <laughs> some groups say that it's five uh, and that um, when, he, when he says some pastors and teachers, he's just shortening the language instead of adding and some teachers. Uh, others would say, no, the, the, the rules of Greek grammar actually require that we understand uh, pastors and teachers as being the same office. And I, I tend to be of that later category uh, because I think that the Greek grammar, the rules of Greek grammar there are, are pretty convincing that if Paul had intended us to understand teachers in that particular place, um, as being a separate office, he, he would have he would have done so. Um, let me let me just briefly describe uh, what what he means by apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers, uh, because what he's doing is he's talking about um, the, how how we grow uh, together as the body of Christ. Let, let me let me just back up and begin at verse seven. He says, "But to each one of us, grace is given." according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended, descend, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles. So here are some of the gifts that he gave. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And then here's what's key, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, so there, there's, a, there's a narrow and then a wider application of this. When, when Paul says he gave some to be apostles, the narrow idea is those original apostles, the 12 uh, remove Judas and put Paul in there, um, those apostles that he had in Matthew 19 specifically authorized to have the keys of the kingdom and to bind and to loose what becomes normative in laying the foundation of the church. Because then he goes on and he says some prophets, and again, narrowly, that's referring to the Old Testament prophets, those that wrote the Old Testament, because our faith isn't just a New Testament faith. It's an Old Testament faith as well. The Old and the New Testaments go together to give us a complete revelation of God. So our faith is built on the Bible, not just one part of the Bible. So you have the apostles and you have the prophets, which give us scripture. That's the idea there is that for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, we have scripture. Scripture, which was imparted to us by the prophets in the Old Testament and by the apostles in the New Testament. And then he says evangelists. These are those that are uniquely called and gifted to preach the gospel in a way that compels the lost to be saved, compels in a sense that uh, they're, they're drawn. They have an, a special effectiveness in communicating the gospel that has a tendency to get around people's defenses. For whatever it is, they have this unique ability to be able to 
uh, intuitively kind of sense where people are at and to speak a word in such a way that communicates the gospel to them in a convincing way that persuades them and convinces them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Then, once they're saved, pastors and teachers. Pastors who primarily through the role of teaching uh, then take new believers and mature them because that's what it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to basically to a picture of spiritual maturity. So you have the, the basic foundation that lays the content of our faith. You have those that are very effective at bringing people into the faith. And then you have those pastors and teachers that, that grow them. The reason why I think that Paul uh, identifies teacher with pastor here is because he intends for this passage where he's talking about how we mature that it's through the teaching ministry of the pastors. It's primarily in their mode as teacher. Remember a moment ago, I said that the duty of a pastor is to lead, feed, and protect. It's primarily in that, that ministry of feeding, of teaching that they uh, minister. That's where they spend the bulk of their time in teaching God's word and the ways of the Christian life that people can grow. So I think that's why Paul identifies the teaching role of pastors there. Uh, because that's the subject here, is, is how to help people uh, mature. Uh, now, again, I said that that was the, the narrow idea, the apostles being the original 12, prophets being the Old Testament prophets. In, in a larger context, you could say that there have been other apostles, small a as opposed to big A apostles, throughout church history, in the sense that uh, whenever God raises up someone— who steps into an area that has been unreached by the gospel. Uh, th there's no church there. And this is a, a, a missionary, if you will, that comes into the area that does a foundational work, because what do the apostles do? They lay the foundation. So these move into an area, they lay the foundation of faith, they bring first believers there, they plant a church that church grows, which leads to another generation of Christians and maybe uh, additional congregations in surrounding areas, uh, that that person might be considered an apostle small a. They're not laying a new or different foundation. It's the same foundation that was laid by the capital A apostles, but they're now breaking into a brand new area. And so they become, if you will, the foundation layers of the church, church planters, in a new area. Uh, you could also say that maybe in a new area of culture, maybe the church is already there, but but the culture itself has moved on, so the, the, the local congregations that are there are not really reaching the culture anymore. It's just a fringe element that's attending the church, and the, the wider popular culture is, in effect, unreached. There is no viable, ongoing, self-replicating uh, witness for Christ in that culture now, and so someone would speak in a way to that culture that is relevant and fresh, and a new work begins, a, a, a new movement, a new church planting movement. You, you could make a case for saying that they're an apostle as well. Again, small a, not big A. And then prophets in the same way. There were Old Testament prophets, but uh, we know that in the New Testament, there are people uh, that have the gift of prophecy, who have the calling and gifting to speak forth God's word and counsel, God's word and will. Uh, they're able to, to give a word. I think we've all heard this. When you hear anointed preaching, when you hear preaching, and, and as you're listening, you lose the sense that the person who's speaking on the stage or through the speaker on the, you know, the radio or wherever, uh, on online, you're, you're, and you're hearing something it's like you've lost the sense of that 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 human who's who's speaking because God is speaking to you. Um, that's that you could say that's prophecy. That's God speaking through the voice of a of a human being. That's a prophet. That's prophetic. Uh, and but those are small p prophets, as opposed to the big p prophets of the Old Testament: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Habakkuk, Zechariah. Those guys. 
Okay, so again, you have the narrow understanding of apostles and prophets, and then the, the wider understanding of apostles and prophets. All right, we've got about six minutes left. Let's try another one. Rami asks, my question concerns Revelation 18.23. Hey, can I just say, whenever uh, someone, any pastor, I would say, gets a question, and you look down and you see that it's from Revelation, your heart immediately starts to flutter, because Revelation <laughs> is a book that is inordinately difficult uh, to interpret and to understand. Everybody recognizes that. So <laughs> when we have these questions today from Revelation, especially as this is my first time doing Q&A, my heart's like, oh no, what's this one going to be on? Uh, my question concerns Revelation 18.23. I read that the Greek word in this passage means pharmacy, and some people think it's about COVID and vaccines. Is this biblically accurate? So let's go to uh, Revelation 18.23. So it says, uh, The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice, I believe this is the judgment of Babylon, right? Yeah, it's the judgment of Babylon. Uh, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Okay, so so great great question, Rami. Uh, yeah, that word pharmacy or uh, uh, sorcery is the word pharmakeia, from which we get our word pharmacy, and it refers to drugs. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, specifically, Rami, you asked the question: uh, Is this about COVID and vaccines? Uh, I can say just on the surface, absolutely not. And, and here's why. Interesting that the translators in English didn't translate this uh, what we might expect. If it's the Greek word pharmakeia from which we, we get our word pharmacy, why don't we read, and by your drugs all the nations were deceived? Well, because the translators understood that the drugs being referred to here weren't medicines. These were hallucinogenics. These were not medicines, uh, drugs in, in medicinal drugs. These were drugs that people took to enter an altered state of consciousness. These were hallucinogenics. And today uh, would be something like LSD. Of course, they didn't have LSD back then. LSD was invented in the late 50s, I believe. Um, so, uh, but these were, uh, th these were uh, mescaline, uh, of course, is, a, is a, a, a hallucinogenic, very dangerous peyote, uh, a hallucinogenic. People of the ancient world used these hallucinogenics as a way to enter what they believed was an altered state of consciousness where they would then interact with the spirit realm. Uh, you, you take one of these hallucinogenics and you hallucinate. You enter into a realm beyond the realm of normal perception. You see colors, you hear words, you encounter beings, and that's exactly what would happen. You see, this is the danger of an altered state of consciousness, why we must be, and this is where we go back to an earlier question, why we must remain sober-minded. Because if we're not sober, our minds aren't thinking clearly, and we become more susceptible to outside sources of influence, including demons. So people of the ancient world would take these hallucinogenics, they would enter into an altered state of consciousness where then spirits would come to them, demons would come to them, masquerading as, Paul says, angels of light, imparting to them information that was contrary to the truth of God and so deceive people. This is what we saw in the 60s with the movement towards the wide use of hallucinogenics. And this is why in the 60s, there was in the West, in Europe and the United States and Canada, a huge sudden interest in Eastern religions. You know, it was, it was curious that Europe and uh, the North America had very little interest in Eastern religions uh, prior to the 60s. Uh, but all of a sudden they did. Why? Because they started taking these hallucinogenics. Demons came to them and started speaking things to them 
that were repeats of things from Eastern religions. And so that's what's being spoken of here, the wide use of hallucinogenics uh, in the end times. So not COVID and vaccines. And that brings us up to one o'clock. Uh, I, I hope I haven't butchered this Q&A too badly today and that uh, Chuck and Miles can pick it up and do a far better job than I did today. Good luck, guys. And uh, it was fun. Thanks for this opportunity.